Hello and welcome to New Books Network Fantasy and Adventure Channel. I'm your host, Gabrielle Mathieu, or if you're French, you might say Gabrielle Mathieu. Today I'll be discussing The Last Good Man with author Linda Nagata. In The Last Good Man, Linda Nagata uses a brisk and bracing writing style to immerse us in the lives of private military contractors in the near future. The team, basically moral individuals, work in conjunction with individually guided robotic weapons and surveillance equipment. If Catherine Bigelow, the director of Zero Dark Thirty, wrote a speculative fiction novel, it might be something like this. Wasting no words, the story stays right on track, concentrating on Army veteran True Brighton as she and her teammates undertake a dangerous mission, which wakes old wounds. For True, painful memories of her son's death resurface, while her boss, Lincoln, must come to terms with a past decision he made for the greater good of the unit. True's anguish and her questions about right action are absorbing and affecting. On another level, the story works as speculative fiction, inviting us to consider a future where AI combat replaces human soldiering more and more. The point of direct AI involvement is to spare the lives of soldiers, but as the novel shows, that goal isn't always as simple as it sounds. I'd like to read an excerpt. This is close to the opening, which takes place when a man called Usury comes to the place where True works. It's called Rec Ops, and he's asking them to help him retrieve his daughter from a dangerous situation. He's made his case, and he's showed them a photo of her. True confronts the photo of Fatima Atwan, a bright-eyed young woman, the prime years of her life still ahead. Yuzi's reserve slips. She doesn't deserve this. True looks up to see tears shining in his eyes. Yuzri Atwan is a Seattle native. He owns a small but prosperous company that manufactures chemical sensors. His daughter, Fatima, is a young medical doctor and an idealist dedicated to helping those less fortunate than herself. She committed to a year of overseas service with a charitable foundation, and her father is right. She doesn't deserve what happened to her. But then, most people overrun by the firestorms of chaos and anarchy don't deserve their fates. It takes usury only seconds to recover his composure, and when he speaks again to Lincoln, it's in a hard, determined voice. I've talked to people, Mr. Hahn. They say you, your company, can help when no one else can. I understand it costs money. I can pay. I can get $600,000 in cash within two business days. It's all I have, and I know it's not enough. But she's with El Hashem. As these words pass his lips, Usury's face flushes dark. He looks away. He looks at the wall. True watches him intently, sure that he is contemplating what that fact means for his daughter. Is there anything worse than knowing the brutality your child endures and being helpless to affect it? No, she thinks, there is not. Breathing softly, shallowly, 
she schools herself to stay focused. Hussam el-Hashim has styled himself a holy warrior, head of the Al-Furat coalition. But in truth, he's nothing than a gangster grown wealthy on protection money and kidnapping and ransom schemes. There are men like him all over the world, bereft of conscience, unwilling to commit atrocities in the name of any convenient cause. So that opening sets up the conflict. We're going to be talking with Linda in a minute about how she came to write the book and about the themes in it. So I'd like to start the show by saying a few words about her. Linda Nagata grew up in Oahu, Hawaii, with a strong interest in science and science fiction, unusual at the small rural high school she attended. College was a lifesaver. She attended the University of Hawaii at Manoa, majoring in zoology. The day after graduating, she took off to Maui to be with her future husband, Ron. Ron and Linda raised two children, with Linda electing to be a stay-at-home mom. During those years, Linda first moved her writing career into high gear. She had extremely productive years, as evidenced by her lengthy biography. From 2000 to 2008, she took a break from writing full-time to work as a web programmer. With the end of that job, she's returned to writing. Her 2013 novel, The Red First Light, was the first self-published novel to be nominated for the Nebula Award. It later sold to Simon & Schuster's Saga Press and was named as a Publishers Weekly Best Book of 2015. So I'd like to welcome Linda on the show. Welcome to the show, Linda, and thanks for joining us today. Hi, Gabrielle, and thank you for inviting me. Sure. So your novel introduces us to True Brighton in the first couple of pages, and much of the novel revolves around True. She doesn't deny her age, 49, letting the silver show in her neat braid, but she's also lean, fit, and professional. But True carries a burden that's not immediately apparent. Like Yasri, the client who's now asking them to help his young daughter, True once had a son. She reflects that there's nothing worse than knowing the brutality your children endure. What kind of people are their children, and how did they come to be in dangerous situations? Well, um, True is a retired Army veteran. And she actually has three children. Um, Her oldest son went into the army immediately after high school. And um, he was killed um, on a mission in a, in a brutal manner that of course has left scars on everyone in the family. Um, And uh, Yusri is a businessman who lives in the Seattle area where much of the book takes place. And um, his daughter is a medical doctor who's working in um, the Middle East in a charitable operation, um, you know, helping helping to people who don't have any other access to medical care. So that's how she came to be involved in a dangerous situation. She was actually kidnapped and um, is being held not even for ransom. So her father, Yusri, is determined to... Um, to free her from her situation and bring her home. So True works for a military contractor. They're called Rec Ops. 
Yes, requisite operations or rec ops for short, and they are a private military contractor, private military company. So um, in the in the situation in the setup in the book, this is, the book takes place just a few years into our future, and in this world, uh, private military contractors have a lot of power um, because of technology. They're able to do a lot of things. And there are areas of the world with, uh, without a whole lot of um, local government. And so sometimes the only way to deal with problems is to hire a company like Requisite Operations. Right. You described a near future as a world of failed states and ungoverned territories when legitimate governments cannot or dare not to intervene. And actually, although in the past, military contractors have had somewhat of a bad reputation, overall, rec ops doesn't seem to be just about profit, is it? It's not just about profit in that they, the, the way that I've set up this the company in the novel is that they they discriminate. They they want to vet all of their clients. So um, when Usri comes to them uh, with his issue, his daughter who's been kidnapped, they look into his background. They want to make sure that that's the straight deal. They want to understand what's really going on. Um, they do that both out of you know an, an ethical sense, but also because they are. Um, contractors with the U.S. government, and they do expect some oversight. So there are certain rules that they try to follow. So are companies like RecOps necessary in this future world or even desirable? You know, desirable is is a very debatable question. When I tend to write fiction, I like to write about uh, what is or what very likely will be. And, and just look at the different angles of it as the story progresses. Um, right now and in the past uh, 10, 15, 20 years, uh, private military and security companies have been increasingly important um, all around the world. And whether or not they're, they're run well or run ethically or supervised, that's, that's a, a huge point of debate. Mm-hmm. That's been in the news lately again, too, with Donald Trump's decision to possibly turn over some of the fighting that's going on to private military contractors. Seems like it's coming up a lot. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there's from a governmental point of view, there can be advantages because you know, from the research I've done, it sounds like if there are casualties from from contractors, they're not counted as as battle deaths in the same way that a, a U.S. Army soldier would be counted. Mm-hmm. So, and and the other, you know, so there's there's these kind of um, uh, political reasons why you might want to to use a contractor, and. In some cases, you know, they may be much more uh, versatile, much uh, able to move more quickly. So it just it depends. And what I wanted to do in this book was um, look at the situation, look at the different uh, possibilities, things that might actually be, you know, whether those are good or not. And even in the book, the some, the the characters question what they're doing 
question the authority that they've taken for themselves. Right. Some do, and then some are in it for more of a mercenary stance. There is also a lot of uh, information about artificial intelligence. For mm-hmm. instance, the book has many passages, such as the following. All the truck drivers in the TEZ, which is a specific zone that you've created, use AR. They made an app that highlights the wrecks, the bombs, craters, the potholes. With the failure of the state to govern, are communication and informal networks more important than ever to pool resources and gather information in the speculative world that you've created? Well, I think that this is actually going on now. Um, that uh, paragraph, that, I mean, the sentence that you read, uh, that's where they're using augmented reality. So they... They can wear, say, a goggles or a mask and have um, a map overlaid on the world that they see. And so they work together to compile this record of, um, you know, where to look out for road trouble. That's what this specific part is about. And, you know, even now, people, if you go on Twitter, people are uh, reporting on news long before the news gets gets it online. Mm -hmm. So that's, you know, that's a very similar kind of situation. Um, in another book that I wrote uh, was uh, the third volume of the Red Trilogy. The title is Going Dark. Uh, there's a scene in which um, a small military company is essentially trapped in a sprawling city. And as they try to get out of the city, their movement is being observed by uh, the local residents who are posting updates on some social media so that they're constantly being watched no matter where they go. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's a, a similar sharing of information, pooling of, of community resources. Right. Really, the people on the ground are in a position to best pool resources in troubled hotspots. That's mm-hmm. true. So moving on to the antagonist who is first introduced as John Helm, He actually comes up later in the novel after the operation is already underway. And we can contrast John Helm with True and her crew. He also runs an operation. And what is his operation like? And why does he work the way that he does? Well, I have to be very careful not to do too many spoilers at this Mm -hmm. point. But um, a point is made in the book between... um, what we call white hat and black hat. So these we have white hat mercenaries and, and black hat mercenaries. Um, and John Helm definitely represents the black hat side of the equation. Right. Yeah, because, because of events in his past, uh, which I don't really want to go into because I think it goes a little bit too deep into the plot of the book. Mm-hmm. But um, he does not have a moral standard, and he's very clear about that. So he will take whatever job he thinks he can get paid for. So that's in direct contrast to um, our protagonist in requisite operations. Right. True and her boss, Lincoln, who uh, has actually created requisite operations, are both professionals. And so True has, I quote, years of practice suppressing emotions so that she can operate efficiently. 
Is it possible for Drew and Lincoln to continue to remain detached as events unfold? And why is this a particular challenge for True? Well, I think that, um, you know, detachment is necessary for, for men or women in the military to, to, some, to some degree because they have to deal with things of the moment. They, they can't afford to break down. Um, they have to maintain respect from the other, other people around them. They can't be emotionally needy especially during an unfolding mission. Um, so True is skilled at that. And I think what I've tried to do is show her in control throughout most of the book. However, what, what shows on the outside is not necessarily a reflection of what's going on on the inside. Um, she's challenged in this book because uh, much of the storyline has to do with the fate of her son, the one who was uh, killed in in battle s- several years, eight years prior in, in the storyline. And so, of course, being a mother, that's an emotionally compelling um, line for her to follow. So she needs to deal with that internally while remaining in control externally as she um, as she pursues her goals. Well, and who is the last good man of the title of your book? And what qualities does he display that make him a good man? Well, the, you know, I, I hate to give away too much of the plot. Well, you don't have to. You could just yeah, there is, um, speak generally. The, yeah, the title... It's a, it's one of those double meaning titles that it does refer directly to one of the characters in the book, but it's it's also a, a thematic kind of a title because one of the tensions in the plot is um, the rise of autonomous um, autonomous military robotics, so autonomous warfare, um, and our characters are brought to the point where they're beginning to wonder how long there will be a place for actual human soldiers on the battlefield. So for me, the title is is resonant because of that tension in the book. Mm-hmm. And uh, let me promise to readers, you will find out all about The Last Good Man and what kind of a person he was when you read the book. So moving on uh, and kind of going back to the AR, surveillance is a recurring theme. No one relies just on the information from their eyes and ears anymore. To stay competitive, a firm like RecOps has to maintain an edge. So I really liked your description of biomimetic devices, and I'd like you to share a little information with our listeners about what they are, what purposes they serve, and tell us a little bit about the different forms they take. Okay. Um, yeah, a large part of the technology in the book has to do with robotics. Uh, some of it's very large, uh, autonomous um, fighter planes, for instance, and some of it's quite small, uh, small robotics that are based on uh, biological life forms. So, for example, there's what's called a surveillance beetle, which is about beetles, large beetle-sized, and is used to um, surreptitiously 
enter a building or say you could point um leave the beetle sitting at a doorway or something to monitor who goes in and out or you could send it into a suspect building to see who's in there where they are how they're armed in that sense you could get yourself ready to invade the building and have really good knowledge of what you're going to be facing um, a few other forms that i use in the book are bird forms which can be used to surveil an area um, even what I call mosquito drones, which can be used to take tiny DNA samples to help you identify uh, somebody who you can't actually see. So there's just all kinds of things. And a lot of this is based on robotics that are being developed these days. There's very interesting forms um, coming out just over the last couple of years. Uh, bird forms have been around for a while. And um, I think there's been a beetle form. One of the um, technological barriers holding back development is the, the lifespan of the batteries mm -hmm. that um, will power these things. Uh, but battery life is getting longer and longer. So it's amazing how fast uh, development is going on in the real world. Yeah. But um, a lot of a lot of researchers have had success basing their designs on living forms or on aspects of them. I think I just saw one recently that um, was a one-legged bouncing robot with its <laughs> leg imitating um, a kangaroo leg. Hmm. And some of them can blend in pretty well with their surroundings too, as mm -hmm. biomimetic devices. So they're not necessarily easy to observe. Mm-hmm. Which is, of course, what you'd want if you want to do um, surveillance. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So another part of leading a successful operation is preparation. And you went into a lot of detail about how a mission is set up. For instance, one mission is described, the equipment is triple-checked, and local geography memorized. Do you think most Hollywood blockbuster movies are realistic in their depiction of military missions, or do they kind of gloss over this in-depth, perhaps somewhat boring process to get everything set up properly? Well, I hope the process wasn't boring in the book. <laughs> no, it wasn't. I mean, I imagine it's boring if you're doing that in preparation for the mission right. as opposed to actually getting the adrenaline flowing when you're in the mission yourself. The description wasn't boring at all. Okay. No, it's funny because um, sometimes I'm watching movies with my husband and um, – the plot will be jumping forward and mm -hmm. I'll just turn to him and I'll say, you know, in a novel, I would have to explain how they did that. <laughs> so movies can take a lot of shortcuts. Um, but, you know, it really, it depends on, on the movie. Some, some do better than others in, in approaching a more realistic um, sense of developing a mission. But in the end, it's entertainment. And, um, you know, whether it's a book or a movie, we all have to finesse the process, just as you were saying. Um, we need to make sure that it's interesting to somebody who's not directly involved. So that's going to um, that's going to result in skipping a few steps or speeding things up to get the whole thing done in a time frame that's reasonable for for entertainment. I know no matter how thoughtful the entertainment might be. 
As authors, we do so much research on background that never can make its way into an entertaining and fast-paced novel, so I can relate to that. So uh, I don't believe you've been in the military yourself, have you, Linda? That's correct. I have not. So it seems a little unusual uh, for a woman to specialize in speculative fiction focused on the military. Also, I'm glad there are women who uh, focus on that as well. But I was just wondering what drew you to that specialty. Well, from as long as I can remember, what I loved about fiction um, was the, the adventure, the action, um, going out and doing things, facing challenges. And I never wrote military fiction for many years. And it just had occurred to me almost by chance um, as I was contemplating another novel um, that this a character that I had had originally developed in a short story, I knew I needed to write something involving him. And it just came to me that what he needed to do was to go into the army. And that story became The Red. And that was actually my first real military novel. Mm -hmm. And that was the first of a trilogy. And um, The Last Good Man is the novel that followed that. But what I found in writing about the military is that it does let me address things that have always interested me in fiction. And those would be things like, as I said, the action, the adventure, but also the moral challenges, the ethical challenges, uh, questions of honor, of um, what do you do in really challenging situations when you have to make some pretty um, severe ethical choices. And that's that's why I like to read fiction. I you know I write the kind of stories that I like to read, and this um, military setting has let me explore a lot of these questions in um, pretty in- detail that's pretty interesting for me from a writer's perspective. Mm-hmm. I actually grew up in a family that was pretty adamantly against the military, but I really enjoyed your book, and I related to the characters a lot because uh, it just it is speculative fiction. That means it contains very realistic elements. It's not some kind of far out story with lots of things happening to people that I can't relate to. So I think military, uh, the military service does serve as a good stage for parsing moral choices. That was one of the things I liked about it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree with that. And also setting the stories in the near future. Um, you know, it's been said many times that we live in a science fiction world. Mm-hmm. And this these books have really allowed me to explore that. And especially with The Last Good Man, there's, there is really nothing in that novel that is not being developed right now. And so from that sense, I think it gives a – it lets me take a, a look at where we might be going, you know, what could be happening. Yeah, next five or ten years. I could well mm-hmm. see it. In fact, you wrote your novel in a present tense. 
almost as if it was happening now. Uh, most novels are written in a past tense, but I like the present tense to give that immediacy that really fit well with a fast pace. I wondered if you chose that narrative style right away or if you experimented with different ways of telling the novel first. Well, um, I actually started writing it in past tense and I got 10, 15, 20, I think it was over 20,000 words into the novel, which is a a pretty good chunk. And I just didn't feel it. I I didn't like the way it sounded. I didn't feel like I had um, a real connection with it. Mm -hmm. And I finally, I just said, well, I'm just going to write the next chapter in present tense, third person. And I've, I've never really written present tense, third person, more than a few pages worth. Um, and so I just wrote this chapter in present tense, and it was just like a light went on. Mm-hmm. And from then on, I wrote, moving forward, I wrote in um, in present tense. And then for the chapters that I'd already written, what I would do is I would spend the morning writing new 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 words, and then I would spend the afternoon going backwards, taking um, a chapter that I'd written before and rewriting it in present tense, moving backwards to the beginning. So gradually converting it and filling in details. So sometimes I find this a lot with novels that I have to 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 toy with the beginning, to to experiment, to try different things until I find what feels like the right uh, the voice, the right tone for the novel. And it took quite a while with The Last Good Man. I think beginnings are really hard because you want to orient the reader right away, which your book does, and not every book does. I've picked up books and in a first chapter, you're like, okay, who who are these people? And uh, who's this other person who just came in the door? So your book gets right down to business. But it's hard to do that without dumping too much information on someone. So the beginnings do take a little bit of tinkering around with to just set yeah. the stage and opening the door. It's quite a bit, too. And also, if you've just come off of... Um doing the final polish on a on a prior novel mm-hmm. when you've already figured all this stuff out and you're sitting there with the blank page and you need to do it all again. <laughs> it can be very intimidating. Yes, it can. So you've had years and years and years of writing experience. Uh, to my listeners, if you go to Linda's homepage, you will find so much on our bibliography. I understand that you've had experience with traditional publishing off and on, and right now you're choosing to self-publish under your own imprint. So I'd love to hear a little bit about your journey and your experiences with both traditional and self. Okay, sure. Yeah, I started, um, my first novel was published in 1995. And um, including that one, I had six novels that were published either by uh, Bantam Books or by Tor, which is a big science fiction publisher. Mm-hmm. And um, those books did well um, critically, not so well on book sales. So by the time the, the sixth one was published, I was actually – I had 
pretty much walked away from writing at that point. I was I'd been very frustrated and um, I had moved off, moved into um, web programming. Actually, I worked as a web programmer for a number of years and um, then around 2010 or so, I started hearing a lot about self-publishing. At that point, I had all the rights back on my um, traditionally published novels. And so I decided that I would go ahead and, and republish them myself. That was something that I wanted to do from, from the day that the, the rights had reverted. Um, the great thing about self-publishing is the control that you have over your own work. You can, um, you can find your own um, covers, covers that you like. You can make the book descriptions as you like them. You can publish them in the forms that you like, in the, and you can publish them globally. Um, and you make enough per book that you can afford to do a little bit of promotion on them, which is very difficult if you're traditionally publishing. And it was it was a whole lot of fun at the start. I really I enjoyed the process. I I knew how to do it because of my experience in um, web work. Mm-hmm. And um, after I got the old books out, I started writing some new material. And eventually, I wrote I wrote the novel The Red, which um, is the one that I mentioned earlier. It's my first military novel, and it went on to be nominated for a Nebula Award. And because of that uh, publicity, I got a nice offer from Saga Press, uh, an imprint of Simon and Schuster, and Saga republished that novel, and along with uh, two sequels to make it a full trilogy. Uh, and meantime, I was writing The Last Good Man. And because the, I think because The Last Good Man does not fit well into, uh, into well-known genres, in other words, it's, it is science fiction, but it's also almost a military thriller, but it doesn't follow typical thriller plots. Mm-hmm. And maybe because it the protagonist is a 49-year-old woman who's not your typical thriller protagonist. Right. She's not flirting and showing cleavage and having exciting encounters with men, or at least not those kind of exciting encounters. Right. Romantic encounters, yes. Um, So there was, I think, a lot of puzzlement over what to do with it. And I did send it to my agent, and he loved it. But we did not find, you know, we weren't able to place it with a publishing company. So I said, fine. Um, you know, I'd already told him if I didn't get the an offer that I wanted, I was just going to do it myself. Mm-hmm. So that's how it turned out. And um, I've been pretty happy with the process. I think that, um, you know, it's gotten uh, some nice reviews. And um, there is now an audio version that just came out last week. So... We've got it in print, ebook, and audio. So I do. I hope people will take a look at it. Um, not all fiction is going to fit neatly into the categories, and you know I hope we have readers who are willing to take a look at things that they might not normally consider. Like you said, um, you know you don't usually read military fiction, right? But. Um, my work has been described in the past as uh, military fiction for people who don't read military fiction. <laughs> so. Well, I think I liked it because I found the characters much more approachable. 
in a way, the check the box kind of fiction that unfortunately the large publishers are having to rely on to keep their businesses going. There is not that much fresh about it. It seems to be a lot of retellings of the same old tired plot or books described as, well, it's X meets Y. So it's really nice uh, that we have the ability to put work that doesn't fit in a box out there for our audience at a, in a cost-effective fashion and take charge of our own careers. Mm-hmm. And I'm glad you're leading the way there. Yeah, I'm just really glad these days that we have the choice to do that because it, it, that wasn't the case when I first started writing. So being able to to consider either traditional or self-published fiction, I think, is a huge advantage for writers. Yeah, it certainly is. So uh, what are you working on these days, Linda? Well, I've started three novels in the past year and haven't quite decided which one I want to dedicate myself to. And then I've got some short stories that I need to be working on. A lot of this year, though, has gone to um, publicity and getting The Last Good Man ready to go out into the world. Mm -hmm. I think sometimes the publicity can be as much work as writing the novel itself (laughs) in a a different kind of way. Yeah. Well, we've taken taken up a lot of your time, but I wanted to thank you for dropping in and talking with us today. Well, thank you for inviting me. I really appreciate it. You're welcome. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thanks for joining us today on Doom Books and Fantasy. For my interview with Linda Nagata, she's the author of The Last Good Man. You can find out lots more about Linda at her website, which is www.mythicisland.com. You can follow me on Twitter at Gabrielle Author to see when new podcasts are up. That's Gabrielle, G-A-B-R-I-E-L-L-E. And I think you all know how to spell author. I'm Gabrielle Matthew, the author of the Historical Fantasy Falcon series. You can also read about my work and travels at GabrielleMatthew.com, last name spelled the French way. M-A-T-H-I-E-U. Till next time and thanks for listening.